Well, good morning again, everyone. So, I've heard some comments that maybe your brains are smoking. <laughs> That's typically what happens. We have a we have a topic here, or we have a interpretation of Ezekiel, which I submit to you again from our documentation yesterday. This was the original understanding, and it, it, it truly was. We're looking pre-1930 era that the Jews would return as pre-adventual colonists, that they would pursue their economic interests, and then by of necessity, Jews must be there for Gog to scatter. So we have this regathering. Now, the regathering of Israel into the land of Palestine is a miraculous testament and sign to us. And what I want to make sure to clarify to you is it doesn't lessen that return or that regathering. As the rumbling started to happen in 1897, as it, uh, a statement with the Balfour Declaration in 1917, the second and third Aliyah throughout the British mandate through the late 20s and 30s, the close of that door with the infamous white paper, the British kind of turned their backs, then we have the World War II, and then we have the Holocaust. Now it's also interesting that Principally, the Jews despised the land. They did not want to return there. They had a couple of open opportunities to go there in mass and settle it without persecution during that window of time. The Russian pogroms where they threw Jews from upper story windows when they massacred them in the, uh, uh, the late uh, 1900s, I believe, the late, I'm sorry, the late 1800s, again, dispersed them west, but they did not return to the land. Then, as Theodore Herzl began to discover, there is no safe place for Jews in Europe. So we must come up with a homeland. We must start this endeavor to get Jews back to a nation of their own. And we see the workings of that. Now, the prophecies that speak very clearly of this miraculous regathering, I would invite you to look at Isaiah 60, verse 9, which says, Surely the isles shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish first, to bring thy sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them. Unto the name of the Lord thy God, and to the Holy One of Israel, because he hath glorified thee. Surely the isle shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish first. There is an acid test, or a litmus test, to what Tarshish would do. So some people have put Tarshish back with Phoenicia, and things like that, things like that which is incorrect. The acid test of what Tarshish would do, what he would, as a power in a nation, facilitate and be favorable for the Jews return to Palestine. That is key. There is no other power that did that but Britain. And so surely the Isles, we can, you know, that's a whole other talk, a whole other uh, analysis, but we've, uh, we've looked at it. The ships of Tarshish will wait for me to assist Yahweh in regathering the Jews or being favorable to them to returning to Palestine. You flip over to Jeremiah 31.10, And we get another verse that says the same thing. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. Now what did the Reformation accomplish? It brought the Bible to the hands of the Protestants. Right? We know the manuscripts, the Latin Vulgate, were dispersed out of Constantinople in 1453 fleeing from the face of the Turks, the overthrow. Those manuscripts found themselves in Western Europe. 
People like William Tyndale took it upon themselves to print the Bible, which under Catholic domination of Europe was punishable by death to own a Bible. And once the Protestants got the Bibles into their hands, they started reading it. And with almost total unison, if you look at all those Protestant writers, they, from reading the Bible now, identify who the harlot was, the man of sin, the false prophet, all is the Catholic Church. Calvin, Luther, and all of their followers. So the word of God, dividing like a two-edged sword, begins to reveal to a Protestant Reformation base who the real harlot is and the apostasy is, and also a favorable inclination to the Jews. Now, how do we prove that? Well, when we get closer towards the end of that Reformation period, and of course Protestantism has gone back underneath the Catholic fold these days, and they're just one of the harlot daughters, but while they were separated, and we see the later influences on the leaders of Britain. Now, it's interesting to note that a sister Armstrong was the nanny of Lord George. So we like to think that maybe there was some influence there. Winston Churchill's chauffeur was a Christadelphian. And if you know Paul Billington of the Bible magazine, it was his grandfather. We know that General Allenby, when he rode into the city of Jerusalem, dismounted with his men and would not go into the East Gate because he said that, is, that honor is reserved for a future king. So we know that this favorable response, we have the Rothschilds, you know, Britain did turn their back back and forth, but we have this motive in their heart that allowed them to assist the Jews, of course it was under Yahweh's direction and the direction of the Elohim, to return back to Palestine. What putting Ezekiel 37 in its correct sequence in no way undermines that, takes away from that, or lessens that fact. That is a dramatic, miraculous, attesting sign that we have witnessed in this period of time. The other thing that is tempting, which we have no precedent for, and we don't do with any other part of uh, prophetic books, is to take Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39 in sequential order. Christ has returned in 37, therefore he is the cause of peace and safety in 38, and we continue into 39. Well, really, if you want to read Ezekiel 36, Christ has returned there. If you want to back up and look at other chapters in Ezekiel, he's returned there. We don't, don't, we don't do that with the apocalypse. We have a vision of the kingdom, events historically that are going to happen, and then, as Brother Thomas says, we have a ribbon that folds back on itself. We get a glimpse back, then we go forward. Same with Daniel. So why would we all of a sudden say we must take sequential order here with Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39. We shouldn't. So with that, let's get into where we left off because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Now as we're back in Ezekiel 37, we finished yesterday with the resurrection of Israel. Israel has been decimated in terms of their ability to defend themselves. Their hope is gone. The most tragic event has happened to them in that truly, as you hear in the Arab and the enemies roundabout that say, we will drive you into the sea. Gog has been temporarily successful in doing that. They have been dispersed from their land, the last place and only place that they can be safe. So when that type of event happens, you can see this spirit, our hope is lost. We have been totally and completely destroyed. Our army has failed us. 
Our allies have failed us. Our treaties have failed us. We are hopeless. Now it is at this state that, that this, abased, this abased state that Yahweh will respond. And there is a purpose to this. Because there will be a remnant that comes through the fire. The rebels will have been cut off. The secular, non-believing Jews that must be purged. And this is not, you know, we don't look for this with glee. We take this very humbly because we go, if this is how God deals with his own people, who am I to think that I'm just going to skate into the kingdom? So, you know, this is uh, a very humbling thing, but this is what is going to happen. And God has always dealt uh, with Israel in terms of a remnant. And frankly, he will deal with Christadelphia with a remnant. And that's how it is. Now, it will be after this political upheaval that Israel will be restored as God's nation in the land. This is clearly taught in Ezekiel 39, where after the overthrow of Gog, God says, Yahweh says, Now I will bring back again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be zealous for my holy name. Of this time of restoration, Yahweh says, quote, I have gathered them into their own land and have left none of them any more there or among the nations. I'm reading from Ezekiel 39, 25, and 28. Thus the national resurrection of Israel spoken of in Ezekiel 37 is not the creation of the pre-eventual colonization of Jews and unbelief of Israel in 1948. This is the final regathering where Yahweh imputes his spirit into them. He plants them in their land and to partake of that rest, that final rest, that is never to, never to be disrupted again. Christ and the saints do not pull back as God comes in after this redemption, redemption has taken place. That is totally illogical. It doesn't make any sense that after he has revealed himself, they have mourned for him, they have now realized the truth about Jesus, the man Jesus Christ, not Messiah, who hasn't returned yet in their minds, but the second advent of Jesus, he is not going to forsake them and leave them to be destructed. And you can see, you go, well, yeah, absolutely, I agree with you, Tom. Therefore, Gog never destroys or never comes into the city of Jerusalem. Well, now we're in backfill mode. And we've got to backfill our prophecy, or we come right up to this point and we go, I'm just going to leave that for another day. Here's, here's my next topic. That's the danger. The bones of the nation have been brought together and clothed with flesh. The Son of Man is given another duty to perform. He is told in verse 9 to prophesy to the wind. Remember, the Son of Man is Ezekiel in sign, but he is representative of Jesus and uh, the saints, Christ and the saints. This part of the vision concerns giving the dead nation the spirit that makes it live in Yahweh's sight. Only when the Son of Man prophesies as commanded does the spirit enter the nation, causing the people to live in Yahweh's sight and to stand upon their feet an exceeding great army. In verse 10. Now, this exceeding great army, as uh, was, was put to me last night and very appropriately, it's not the IDF, it's not the Air Force, it's not the Mossad. This is the great and mighty army that Israel will stand up as after they've been redeemed, after they've been brought out of the, uh, Egypt a second time as a trembling bird, after they have witnessed and received the redemption from Christ and the saints, then they will stand up as a mighty army, as the goodly horse in battle, as Yahweh's battle axe, and they will take vengeance on their enemies with that cherubim movement into literal Europe and Babylon and against Rome. 
So this is not the first time nor the last that this spirit is referred to by the prophet. The other occasions are most insightful, and we'll look at those on the overhead here. Ezekiel 11. Here the prophet speaks of the time of Israel's restoration when the people would be regathered, as you can see from verse 17. They shall take away all the detestable things thereof and all the abominations therefore from thence, and I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, again the same word, that they may walk in my statutes, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And also Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. And then a new spirit will I put within you, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes. This is a permanent change, not to be withdrawn, not to be thwarted, not to be... Uh, they are never to experience shame or despair again. They are never to trespass again. This is that uh, lasting captivity, which is in a positive sense, where Yahweh is, has them captive and protected, and this is the perpetuation going forward into the kingdom. In Ezekiel 39, speaking of the overthrow of Gog, neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. It is this process of giving Yahweh's spirit to the dead body of Israel that the vision of chapter 37 is now concerned. What is this spirit that will be given to Israel, which will make the nation live and walk in Yahweh's statutes? Well, this spirit is the next thing we'll look at. The time spoken of in this prophecy is the time when God shall place, and that's a key word in verse 14, Israel in the land covenanted to their fathers. The word place is translated from the Hebrew root nuach, which means to give rest. And the word rest in both Psalms 95.11, which we'll look at quickly, and also Isaiah 11.10 is a derivation of the same root. And this is talking of the rest. So we have a sense of permanence in this placing them and making them participate in the rest. Psalms 95.11 says this, Unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. So it's not just a rest as in uh, take rest from any type of physical activity, but it is a, uh, the sense is the permanent rest. And Isaiah 11.10 says this, which is familiar to us. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. This would suggest that to place Israel in the land is far more than to regather them as Israel is regathered at the present time. Still uh, very much in, in their attestable things, or detestable things, I should say, their abominations. We had the gay pride parade a few, weeks, a few weekends ago in Jerusalem. You have a very secular component of the society, which certainly would reflect the government, uh, but there is a nucleus there that is ready to receive. They still don't know the truth about Jesus, but they uh, are a religious component that will be receptive to certainly the um, preaching of Elijah and the Elijah contingency. It is to settle them in the land in fulfillment of the promises. That's what this rest means. Ezekiel confirms this, for he makes it plain that for Israel to be placed in the land depends upon them receiving the Spirit. Yahweh says, I will put my Spirit in you and ye shall live and I shall place you in your own land. Israel be, will be brought face to face with the truth about Jesus. Those who accept it in faith will be God's people. They will live in his sight, being energized by that spirit, which is the truth. 
Graham Pierce states this, the putting of this spirit into the body of Israel is the instruction they receive which gives them a new heart. And we can see this from, you know the text is a little small, but in Jeremiah, this is part of the role of the saints, is it not? To teach Israel, to give them words of instruction, and we have this prophetically laid out for us in these verses, I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. And in Jeremiah 23, 1-4, I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them. This is not just physical nourishment or food, but this is the spiritual word. And this is what that teaching process involves. They shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Why would they be dismayed? Because the Gogian invasion, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner any more. But thine eyes shall see thy teachers, they'll no longer be blind. And thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way, walk ye in it, when ye turn to the right hand and when ye turn to the left. In Isaiah 30, 19-21, and in, uh, which that was, and in Isaiah 54, 11, And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. In righteousness thou shalt be established. Because as the scripture begs, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How will they learn the truth about Jesus without it being taught to them? And how shall they preach except they be sent, these preachers, these instructors, be sent? As it is written from Isaiah 52, 7, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace, and bring glad tidings of good things. This preaching, instruction, and teaching will come from the saints to Israel as part of God's Spirit. This is still future, and when that happens, it is permanent. The same order of events, uh, restoration is echoed in Ezekiel 36, which point one here, I will take you from among the heathen and bring you into your own land. A new spirit will I put within you. So this theme is consistent. And you shall dwell, and you can compare Ezekiel 37, 25 through 28, which is the tabernacle or sanctuary, or means dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. So this, when the spirit becomes upon them, when they are uh, resurrected and these bones come together in the symbolic sense, when this preaching is given to them, when they are placed in the land, they enjoy the rest, never to be scattered, persecuted again. I would submit to you again this did not happen in 1948. So in conclusion on this first section, I would ask you to consider the parallel between Ezekiel 37, 1-14, which we've been looking at, with its corollary over in Hosea 5, verse 14, through chapter 6, verse 3. And the following are the high points from that, but I would encourage you to look at it in more detail. Both houses of Israel are referred to, just as Ezekiel 37 concerns not a part of the nation, but the whole house of Israel. Verse 11, the judgments of Yahweh under the figure of a lion are presented as tearing the bodies of both Ephraim and Judah. From verse 5, 14, this the Assyrian lion did when he invaded Israel in the reign of Hosea. 2 Kings 18:9, and Judah in the reign of Hezekiah. 2 Kings 18:13. However, the glorious nature of this envisioned restoration involving Israel and Judah would suggest that the Assyrian invasion was a type of Gog's 
Latter-day Offensive or the Latter-day Assyrian out of Micah. Yahweh hides his face from them until they acknowledge their offense and turn to him and seek his face. That is not the disposition of Israel today. This will be a time of affliction from Hosea 5.15. Just as we believe the case is in Ezekiel 37 when they say, our hope is lost. And this is related to, of course, uh, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, the time of Jacob's trouble. They will then say, being instructed by Christ and the saints, come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us, from Hosea 6.1. Then follows the wondrous spiritual revival of that dead nation. After two days he will revive us, in the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Think of day for a year theory and think of 2,000 years, and in that third day we have this restoration of the kingdom and the redemption and salvation of Israel. Only when Israel has thus come to accept the truth concerning the Messiah, the true Messiah, will she stand upon her feet an exceeding great army, Ezekiel 37.10. She will then become the center of Messiah's operations in the earth, ruling over Israel in the midst of the nations of the Gentile world, the Lord with his saints will administer the work of establishing the kingdom throughout the earth. Then it will be said to Israel, from Micah 4.13, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thy hooves brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. There's an interesting verse that gives us a clue when we think of Daniel's image to the sequence or how these things will happen. And if I can remember it without taking too much time, I believe it's in Luke. Here it is. It is Luke 20, verse 18. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Now you think of two phases. Go coming down to destroy Israel, to destroy Jerusalem. It's going to be a religious cause. It's going to be a military cause. It's going to be a political cause. All of these things will collide, and Gog will come down, uh, hooks in his jaws, and he will be brought to attack Israel. But as Christ and the saints will quickly show, even though Israel will have been scattered, the redemption and the regathering coming in to destroy Gog, whosoever shall fall upon the stone, come down upon it to fall upon it, shall be broken. But then phase two is when Israel is redeemed and we have these campaigns, these cherubim campaigns out of Zechariah, which shall go out and grind the nations to powder. So a nice connection there. Now we're into our next section. But I do like this concluding comment by uh, Graham Pierce. All the conflicting ideas cannot be true. This means that some are holding to ideas which, because they are not true, will not happen. And they may, and they may, may well be caught unawares by its coming. Others confused by the variety of ideas, and I feel that many of us are when we look at prophetic uh, interpretation, are becoming discouraged and will lapse or may lapse into a disinterest in prophetic watching and may become engrossed in the world or disillusioned and fall away from faithfulness. 
That is the danger of just leaving prophecy in a confusing mess because that's where it sits collecting dust and it does nothing for your walk. All right, the next section, which is critical. Peace and safety. Who secures it? When does it happen? How does it happen? This is most important, but we've started with Ezekiel 37 for a reason. Now, the above phrase which is, when is the peace and safety, comes from Ezekiel 38, we're in the next chapter now, verses 11 through 12. And this is a phrase that we're very familiar with, a verse we're very familiar with. And for some has been, for a point of time, it's been a controversy, when is this, who secures it, secures it in our community? Part of the confusion arises over the view held by some that the latter, chapters, latter chapter of Ezekiel, excuse me, the latter chapters of Ezekiel are entirely sequential. But as I mentioned earlier, we don't, Where's the precedent for this? We don't take the Apocalypse and other books of prophecy, Isaiah, name them. We don't take them sequentially. Some chapters bleed into the other chapter, and that's completely appropriate, but by a rule, we don't take um, chapter after chapter and say this must be in a chronological order. Several perspectives combined incorrectly together can lead one to believe that Christ is the cause of Israel's peace and safety and their dwelling confidently. So let's bring... I, I, did, I mentioned this yesterday and we'll, we'll look at this again, but, and this will be more helpful as we describe what is the Arabs' role roundabout? Because you clearly look at Daniel uh, 11 and you go, Egypt is a victim of Gog's invasion. So he's not part of the Arabs roundabout just by disqualif uh, disqualification on that point alone. We have um, outcasts or refugees fleeing into Moab, which is modern-day Jordan. So it's really not appropriate to include Jordan in a roundabout Arabs campaign. So now we're getting down to if there is a rare Arabs roundabout first phase campaign against Israel, which precipitates Christ's return to save them, now we're down to, you know, Assyrian... Uh, Hezbollah, Lebanon, West Bank, Gaza type of Palestinian initiative. So we have to get creative to think that the pricking briar of the Palestinians in those roundabout are really going to evacuate and annihilate Israel. And we have to really go down to a very basic assessment of firepower. If Gaza and Hamas armed with rocket launchers and guns are going to push Israel out of their land, that's a stretch. I know that we can add into there some, you know, a suitcase nuke, we can add in there some biological weapons, but where is Israel going to go? Even if you kill 100,000 Jews, where are they going to go? They've got nowhere to go, no, nowhere to go but to the ocean. They're going to annihilate Gaza if it comes to that. They would annihilate Syria. They would annihilate Hezbollah. They would carpet bomb it. They wouldn't do this man-to-man -man type of fighting, this is for their very life. You know, frankly, Israel would love Syria to come across the Golan in the open plains in their tanks, and with their IDF, they would be sitting ducks. We would love for that to happen in Iraq, America, not we. But they didn't, because they knew they couldn't fight on that level. They went hand-to-hand, -hand, house to house. So just in mil military capacity alone, the Syrian army is less than what Saddam's army was. So many of us or many of the thinking was that Saddam is the latter-day Assyrian. That's not true. He's totally gone. Iraq is a kettle of soup. So when we look at the Semitic nations, which would be descendants of Ishmael um, from Shem, 
and we, we look at that. There are none of these in Gog's confederacy. They're all descendants of Japheth and Ham, which is going to be that northern eastern part of Africa. And that's Europe, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Tagarma, Turkey, Persia, which is Iran. That's the part of the confederacy that's going to be able to overwhelm and pass through the Holy Land and push out the Jews temporarily. Now we go back to our verse here in Ezekiel 38:11-12. We have all of them dwelling without walls and neither having bars nor gates. And this poses difficulty for us because Ezekiel, or I'm sorry, Israel today currently lives in what? Checkpoints, barred walls, literal walls, as we see here on the slide overhead. This is a 20-foot uh, barrier, and I can't pronounce the words, but it gives you an indication. Watchtowers, concrete wall. It's been very effective. And we go, that's the peace and safety? Brother Tom, how can, you, how can you say that? I mean, don't we have to have an elimination of these physical walls, an elimination of checkpoints, an elimination of all the armed guards for peace and safety to truly happen? Well, let's look at this. Ezekiel 39, 25-26, which we've quoted many times, demonstrates that the peace and safety before Christ returns is considered a state of trespass against Yahweh in that they secured it in the pride of their own hand, that is, Israel. And we can look at those words above. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, now I will bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name. After that, they have borne their shame, that is, the punishment or the chastening of the Gogan invasion, and all their trespasses, whereby they have trespassed against me, when they dwelt safely in their land, and none made them afraid. Now truly I would submit to you, this is a fleshly mind establishing their own peace with their own military might and dwelling confidently that we will be able to secure our own uh, life, way of life, our own safety. And this spirit, because it has nothing to do with dependence upon Yahweh or even an acknowledgement of him, is considered a trespass by him. And we can add further into uh, the giving up of the land, which it's not theirs to give. Uh, Omert, in a very amazing idea, is, has been toying with giving the Golan back to Syria. And we just see this over and over again. Considering what e Ezekiel has to say here, we must understand that Ezekiel, and specifically chapters 36 through 39, as I mentioned earlier, are not entirely sequential chapters. And much confusion is wrought by suggesting otherwise. I mentioned the books of Daniel and the Apocalypse, for example, are understood as being both telescopic and then microscopic in their explanation of events to occur and are therefore not specifically chronological, repeating the certain times and events from a different vantage point to fill in details not possible with one vision alone. With this as our foundation, we must treat uh, Ezekiel's prophecy in the same fashion. There is simply no basis to consider the latter chapters of Ezekiel as completely chronological in their order of presentation. After all, Christ, if we're going to back up, has returned in chapter 36. So again, we'll, we'll look at the two different viewpoints just to keep it fresh in our mind. If, as modern writers would argue, and different viewpoints would argue, Ezekiel 37 has been entirely fulfilled, or close to being fulfilled, in the 20th century revival of the state of Israel, and that chapters 38 and 39 then follow chronologically, a sequence must be developed as an unbroken chain of events which are not supported by the whole of Scripture. One of those viewpoints, though not complete 
are completely accurate. There's variations to this. Would look like the overhead I've got on the screen. This view holds that the Arab Confederacy, and I would add in there, threatens to overrun or scatter Israel. And those are the supporting verses cited as evidence. Christ is believed to return in dramatic appearance to the world with his angels, literal angels, to Jerusalem to redeem Israel and establish the kingdom, which is, I would suggest, a misapplication of Matthew 24, 27 through 30, or it's out of sequence. He is revealed to the world when he marches into Jerusalem and defeats Gog, not as he returns as a thief to the world to judge the household in Sinai. Judgment of the saints then follows if Christ returns first to Jerusalem to defeat or redeem the Jews from the hands of the Arabs round about, then what, judgment is after that? Or has judgment happened and then everybody is transported to Jerusalem, take out of the march, take the march of the rainbow angel out of the equation, and they're all there? I mean, you, you have to shuffle the pieces to make it work. The unwalled villages and the peace and safety of Ezekiel's prophecy is then believed to have been established as a result of Christ and the saints present in the land. Gog is then enticed down because of this peace and safety and cattle and goods and is opposed and defeated by Christ and the saints outside of Jerusalem on the northern mountains of Israel. He never enters into the city. So there may be several variations of this, but this is the general view that I would... Um, be speaking against, not to be negative, but I am arguing for a different point, and I would submit to you that it is the original understanding, because I'm not into new ideas, so I'm not very interesting sometimes when it, you take me out of uh, Bible things, but there may be several renditions of this line of thought, but this phased Arab Confederacy roundabout which precipitates Christ's return, I would submit to you, is not, is not what Scripture supports. Now, if you read carefully the prophecy of Psalm 83, which is one of the supporting verses that's used here, cited as evidence, the enemies, which geographically do not cover all the nations in conflict with Israel over the last century, we ask, you know, where is Egypt, for example? They never succeed in their desire to cut off Israel. They desire to do it, but they never accomplish that. Gog does accomplish that. So what are we to do with that? Where do we fit it? Thus applying this, uh, this psalm, Psalm 83, to a future Israel-Muslim conflict resulting in a Muslim victory over Israel does not fit the pattern and completely evades the very symbolic language of the psalm such as Yahweh's hidden ones, which are truly Christ and the saints. A reference to Yahweh's immortalized saints, the cherubim storm of verse 15. The contemporary application also completely and conveniently ignores the historic context in which the psalm was written. Note that this song of victory is the psalm of Asaph, most likely written by Jehaziel, the Levite, one of the sons of Asaph in 2 Chronicles 20, 14-27, which records the miraculous destruction of Israel's historic enemies, Edom, Moab, and Ammon, and lesser allies, not by the might of natural Israel, but by Yahweh's hidden army of Elohim, a precursor to those who will march forth from Sinai under the commandment of Yahshua. And there was, quote, and there was the hiding of his power, Habakkuk 3.4, and ultimately overthrow the ten kings in alliance with the beast, as we see from Apocalypse 17.12-14, by the outpouring of the seven judgments, Apocalypse chapter 10, verse 4. 
Now, some have suggested a shadow of fulfillment in this prophecy in those conflicts that have already passed between Israel and her surrounding enemies. And while this may indeed be the case in terms of the shadow and type, we believe that the complete fulfillment of the prophecy or Yahweh's wrath poured out upon the nations by Yahweh's hidden ones or cherubim saints has yet to occur. Now let's look at these verses. Because the second point is, is, is critical, and I think most of us agree on this. Christ cannot return to Jerusalem first with literal angels, as this discounts the entire rainbowed angel march uh, up, up from the south. And let's look at Deuteronomy 33.2. And frankly, all three of these verses, because they're critical to put into our quick reference and be able to recall and understand these verses at any time. Deuteronomy 33, verse 2 reads this, And he said, The Lord came. And that word in the Hebrew is translated, is to come. So it clearly suggests a future coming of Yahweh. The Lord is to come from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran and he came, and that is better uh, rendered from the original Hebrew, to come with speed with ten thousands of saints from his right hand went a fiery law for them. Brethren, that is future. And if we can also look later at a map. Israel did not come through Seir. They had to go all the way around it. So this isn't even the path that Israel took in the past. And of course we know the original Hebrew, Yahweh, or manifested in Christ and the saints, is to come. Let's look at Habak um, Isaiah chapter 63 which is very familiar to us. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness mighty to save? Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine sack? Christ and the saints, they have been in battle as they come up from the south. I have trodden the winepress alone, that means not just Jesus by himself, but as the multitudinous one man, there was no fleshly arm that would assist him, nor need to. And of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. But the, the key verse is, who is this that cometh, this is Isaiah, looking from Jerusalem south, going in his vision, who is this that cometh up to Jerusalem, with dyed garments coming from Edom. It's a southerly movement going to the north. And we add in addition to this, let's go over to Habakkuk 3. Verse 3. God came, and again that word is to come, so Yahweh is to come from Teman, again Yahweh manifested in Christ and the saints, is to, is to come from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. So as we see here, the wilderness of Paran, Sinai, the wilderness of Sion, uh, excuse me, Sinai, all this is from the south, the southern Sinai Peninsula. And the point of origin or point of departure is going to be Sinai itself, where judgment has just been completed. 
Let's go to Psalm 68. And we'll look at verse 17. The chariots of Yahweh are 20,000. Now, what are chariots symbolic of? The cherubim, the immortalized saints moving as a battle arrangement. The chariots of Yahweh are 20,000, even thousands of angels. And that in the Hebrew is better, better rendered as changed ones. So not literal angels, but those that have been immortalized, quickened, and changed by uh, partaking of the spirit nature of Yahweh. The chariots of Yahweh are 20,000, even thousands of changed ones. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. And that last phrase is better said, from Sinai into the sanctuary. And that sanctuary is in Jerusalem. So from Sinai into the sanctuary, with changed ones, as cherubim, as Christ and the immortalized saints, from the south. Not first to Jerusalem. For what purpose would there be for saints to march forth from Sinai, conquering Teman, Paran, Midian, Cushan, Edom, and Basra, if these, if these lands have already been conquered by Christ and the Elohim, appearing directly from heaven? Or if it is assumed that this march from Sinai is for the total destruction of the so-called Arab Confederacy, then how is it that the prophets speak not of complete destruction of the Arabs, but of conquering and conversion of these peoples? Note the following scriptures here from, uh, this first one is from Isaiah 19, 20-25. So what we have to understand, and this will be another section that we'll get into later in the week, is that not all of the descendants of Ishmael, the Midianites, the Dedanites, these, that, uh, these peoples that inhabit the southern area are going to be completely annihilated. There'll be plenty of dead Arabs to speak of because Christ and the saints will come with a two-edged sword. Those can either heed and yield to the power that is before them or they will be cut off. But again, Gog is the main story and his annihilation is complete. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors. And he shall send them a savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. This is the multitudinous Christ. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt. And the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day. And they shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. And the Lord shall smite Egypt, for he shall smite and heal it and they shall return even to the Lord. And he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. These are Egyptians. In that day there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel mine inheritance. And some verses here submitted from a study from Brother Al Bryan. Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar, which is an inhabitant there of southern Arabia, doth inhabit, uh, inhabit the sentence of Ishmael, from Genesis 25:13. Let the inhabitants of the rock sing, 
This is Petra in Jordan. Let them shout from the mountaintops or from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory unto the Lord and declare his praise in the islands. From Isaiah 42, 11 through 12. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto thee. The rams of Nebaioth, again, descendants of Ishmael in, uh, Ishmael in Genesis 25:13, shall minister unto thee. They shall come up with acceptance on mine altar, so bringing sacrifice, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Isaiah 60, verse 7. So how can we possibly have a complete annihilation or destruction of a pan-Arabian confederacy if the prophets instead speak of the subjection, submission, and conversion of the Egyptians, Arabs, and the Assyrians from the false, false Allah to the true Yahweh, upon whose altar their sacrifices will be accepted? This simply cannot be, uh, or this simply cannot happen uh, given the contemporary view which places the Arabs instead of the Roman harlot and her Gogian companions at the center of Bible prophecy. See, the Arabs will pile on. If you look at Psalm uh, 137.7, just like they clapped the hands when Nebuchadnezzar came down to destroy uh, Judah and Jerusalem, and they said, raise it, raise it to the ground. And after that destruction, they came in and they pillaged. And they were punished for that. They will do the same thing, but they need a strong military conqueror to be able to accomplish that. The Palestinians is the pricking briar militarily, capability-wise. The Syrian army, uh, you know, Egypt, again, is a victim of Gog's advance. Uh, Jordan is um, a place where outcasts will scatter. We know that the, the battle line there is going to be fluid. We have the ships of Tarshish or the young lions. Britain and the U.S. are still in the region because they say, to go, art thou come to take a spoil? Not out there, art thou gone, like from some other vantage point. They're still there. Yes, Iraq may fall. We may pull out of that. Uh, however that happens, we don't know all those details, but that presence is still there. And we'll, we'll continue to affirm that later in the week. The truth is that Christ returns as a thief to the world, Revelation 16, 15. Subdues the local populace, or those immediately within the proximity of Sinai, because that's the most logical thing. Christ begin, and his saints begin to move out of Sinai. Anybody that is in the immediate proximity is going to either have to subject um, or be subjugated to Christ's rule or be killed. And we'll get into the other roles of that campaign, which is principally to bring Jews out of Egypt a second time. Fear and dread shall fall upon them by the greatness of thine arm. They shall be as still as a stone till thy people pass over, O Lord, till thy people pass over, which thou hast purchased. Exodus 14:16. And not until his campaign and victory over the Gogan Confederacy does Christ and the saints enter in, into Jerusalem, which is the correct sequence or application of Matthew 24, where he is afterward witness to the entire world through the proclamation of the Midheaven Gospel. This is when the papacy will say, Antichrist. Because Jesus has been manifested to the entire world with a new rule of law, which will be Yahweh's rule. Therefore it is Gog, not the Muslim world, who is responsible for the scattering and humbling of Israel. This is the whole purpose of, for Yahweh in allowing the invasion of Gog to occur, to prepare a remnant of natural Israel to serve him in faith. Quote, so the house of Israel shall know 
that I am Yahweh Elohim from that day and forward. Ezekiel 39:22. Thus there are not two scatterings of Israel as the battles of Armageddon, in which Christ and the saints intervene, uh, and are all contained within the context of the sixth vial in which Gog is defeated, and Israel, that is Judah specifically, and this is another aspect, we just have Judah symbolically in the land. And from Zechariah, I believe it's 6.13, we have one-tenth of Israel in the land. The ten tribes, Ephraim, are still scattered, but we have Judah, we have that one-tenth that's in the land, and that's where this, all these events begin with. All right, the final few minutes here. As we mentioned earlier, who are the players at Armageddon? The composition of Gog's army in relation to the broad prophetic picture is critical to understand in order to decipher events in their correct order and players in their appointed roles. The Gogian confederacy consists of Rosh, who is the chief prince, Magog, Meshech, and Tubal, Persia, Ethiopia, which uh, is Cush, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his bands, the house of Tagarma of the north quarters and all his bands. And if this shows up, all right, we can get a picture of where all these nations and who they're aligned with. Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, Magog, the heart, the central, Germany, Gomer, his brother, as a descendant of Japheth, France and Germany have been instrumental in either having wars or trying to bring Europe together. And they're on uh, track for the... Um, the third Holy Roman Empire, which they're trying to accomplish through the, uh, the constitutional process. We have Tagarma as Turkey, Persia, Iran, Kush, we have an Eastern component here, which is uh, most likely uh, ancient Assyria, present-day uh, Iraq area as well. And then we have a Eastern North Africa component, Ethiopia, Libya. And then we have the Midianites, the Dedanites, uh, Sheba, we have Kedar, as we talked about, and we have the merchants of Tarshish and all the young lions in this area as well. And so we have a battle line. And we know that in Daniel 11, we have the king of the north, the king of the south, pushing at him. Eventually, when Christ returns, that contingency becomes the final king of the south to destroy Gog. But until that time, we have these political upheavals back and forth, and that's the layout of where these players fall according to scripture. As we mentioned in our first class, what is the ethnicity of Iranians? It's not Arab. They are primarily Persian. What is the ethnic origin of Iraqis or Kush or um, um, uh, ancient Chaldeans or Babylonians? They are a mix of Arabians and Kurd, but primarily and historically Assyrian and Babylonian or Chaldean. What is the ethnic, ethnic origin of Tagarma? They are Armenian, Georgian, uh, Saracen or Turk. But unfortunately, however, when we think of the Middle East, we think everything is Arab. And I would submit to you that we need to identify what is really a descendant of Ishmael as opposed to what is a Persian, what is a, uh, a Syrian, what is a Turk. So again, the composition, and we'll close with this thought. Historically and bi biblically speaking, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, and Gomer, Tagarma, and Persia are all descendants of Japheth. Ethiopia, or Cush, and Libya are descendants of Ham. There are no descendants of Shem or Semitic nations listed in Gog's confederacy. Therefore, the composition is not Arab-centric by nature. 
There were no Arab nations round about that displace or supersede Gog in his divinely appointed task with his confederacy to attack and scatter Israel. It goes without saying that some surrounding Muslim enemies will pile on, just as they did behind Nebuchadnezzar when he invaded and took Jerusalem. And they said, raise it, raise it, and clap the hands from Psalm 137.7. But, but the Arabs round about, uh, if, if you'd like to call them that, they are not the main story. And that's the take-home message I'd like you to remember. They're not the main story. They will certainly uh, wreck as much carnage as they can, but they don't have the capability and they're not the main story. Again, just as Psalm 83 never reveals the success of Edom, Moab, and Ammon against Israel historically, but only their desire and attempt. We have seen this pattern played out again in 1948, their attempt, 1956, and their desire, 1967, their attempt in 1973. And if you really go behind the scenes, who was fostering that? Russia. The Palestinians will continue as the pricking briar, which scripture dictates they will be. In stark contrast to the utter failure of the surrounding neighbors to oust Israel in these wars, the northern invader, the spoiler, the extortioner, the king of the north, the latter-day Assyrian, Gog of the land of Magog, does have great, albeit temporary, success in scattering Israel. Zechariah 14.2, Joel 2.1-10, Joel 3. Ezekiel 38, 15-16, Habakkuk 3, 14-16, Isaiah 10, 5-6, Isaiah 16, 3-5, Isaiah 19, and Daniel 11, 45. And the point of listing all these verses, which I'd like to look at tomorrow, is all of these prophets are talking about the same prophecy. Ezekiel 38-39 is not a disconnect that Joel doesn't talk about. It's not a disconnect that Isaiah is not talking about. It's not a disconnect that Habakkuk is not talking about. They are talking about different aspects of the same prophecy. What's your clue? Especially in speaking of Gog, which you go, you know, Gog never really appears unless you read Ezekiel 38. Well, look at Ezekiel 38 and look at verse 17. And this was brought to the attention to me by an exhortation and research by Brother Mac Riley, but it's a poignant point. Look at verse 17. Thus saith the Lord God, Art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them? Who's the thee and the him that has been spoken of in old times by the, my servants, the prophets? It's Gog. These prophets of old have all talked about Gog and what he's going to do. You know, the title of the kings of the Amalekites was Agag. If you read in the Septuagint, that word is rendered Gog. Ancient Scythians who become Russians, the title of their leaders and kings was Gog. So we have uh, a direct uh, relation to this Gogian figure from all the way uh, back from Numbers, from all the way to the Amalekites, um, and we can look at that in Numbers as well. What was Haman in Esther's day? An Agagite, descendant of Amalek. And he had ten sons. So you can look at the prophetic relation there on and on. So we'll stop there.